am here with Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. If people only knew how difficult it was <laughs> under pandemic conditions to get a valid connection, this has been brutal. But you're inheriting my bad tech karma because I just break technology wherever I go. Oh, I assumed that you always had perfect connections at no, all times. It's just bad luck, but mm. it happens enough that I'm used to it. Mm. But it's great to have you here. And I actually, I did go out on Twitter when we first scheduled this and we got some hundreds of questions and I have a few of those seated in here. But let's just start with what's on your mind and what this experience of quarantine has been like for you thus far. Well, I first want to say, Sam, that I think you saved my life because I have, I am a person that has all these underlying conditions and I was not taking this seriously as so many people were not. And I'd even been, you know, I have to go to the doctor a lot and I'd even ask the nurse, you know, what about this COVID or Corona? Is this a problem? And she said, oh, it's not a problem. It's a flu. And you just take some, you know, you drink a lot of fluids and you take some Tylenol. And it was so appealing to think that it was nothing. You know, you want to believe the good news always. And so I was going along thinking everyone was hysterical. And then you just happened to sent me an email, a short email about something else. And at the bottom, you said, you know, be careful. This is shaping up to be a really big deal. And that caught me. I thought, Sam is really smart. And this is the kind of thing he would be really smart about. And that kind of sat in my mind, but I still had to go to a work lunch. And as I was sitting in the work lunch, noticing the restaurant wasn't nearly as crowded as usual, the guy I was interviewing and I, our phones kept going off with all these different things being canceled. Mm. And while he was sitting there, a job he had booked that was really important to his family economically, financially, I should say, dropped out. And so it was kind of just seeing someone in real time losing work and income. And I walked out of there and I I remember I I never eat enough at a work lunch. I'm very nervous in work lunches and Mm -hmm. I always, you know, don't eat. And I stopped, I was walking to the car and I stopped in a, a drugstore and I bought a candy bar and I sat on the it was a bench, a, you know, a bus bench, a bus stop bench on Ventura Boulevard. And all of a sudden, I just thought, I need to go home. It, you know, Sam Harris said this, I'm seeing a lot of signs in it, and I need to get home. And so I really personally have to thank you, because I would have been, and still maybe in really serious, serious trouble if I get this. Well, um, glad to be of service. <laughs> there was this really uncanny part of this mass induction into reality where I was essentially a a week ahead of everyone in my life. Yeah. I began to feel like a character in a movie where Mm -hmm. it was just me and and one other friend who was even probably 24 hours ahead of me. And it just was a bizarre experience, bizarre conversations with family members and friends and And what was it, Sam? I'm sure you've covered this before, but I'm so interested. What was it that that got your attention? What was it that made you realize this was a really serious thing? A few things. I mean, one, I've been primed to think about this. I've been waiting for a pandemic on some level. Okay. I actually did a podcast maybe six months ago on this topic. You know, I I have a template for this sort of thing happening. Although I'm Mm -hmm. fairly amazed at how little detail was in the template and how strange this experience has been as it has unfolded. But the prospect of this happening wasn't foreign to me. The dominoes started to fall pretty quickly. 
frankly, I, I feel pretty late on this. It really wasn't until the end mm. of February that I was paying attention. And people who were really paying attention were a month earlier than, than I was. For whatever reason, I was so distracted by other things. I, I wasn't really noticing the reports from, from Wuhan. But yeah. I also just happened by sheer coincidence, I happen to know someone who got this very early and no kidding. who's still in an ICU. Oh, God. Who's not especially old. He was, you know, 52. Hmm. And so it, the prospect of this was just like the flu seemed far fetched, you know, albeit for reasons that are not statistically sophisticated. I could have happened to know someone who died from the flu, too, and right. had my intuitions move there. But it kind of anchored me to a sense that, no, people my age are going down from this, and I don't know people dying from the flu or being intubated and spending more than a month on a ventilator. God, yeah. So that mm -hmm. just sort of woke me up. And again, it, it's moved so quickly. It's just been interesting to see how long a week is in COVID time. A yeah, week is like a year. isn't it? Isn't it? And I think that's the emotional thing that everybody's, you know, everyone's had a personal crisis and, you know, we all know what that's like and the, the feeling of shock and of panic and sort of getting our vision very, very narrowed into what's, you know, when there's a crisis, people get their priorities straight in about two minutes. You know, most of the time we bumble around and we wonder what, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And is this the right direction? And could I advance myself or my children in different ways? And then there's a crisis and you, you get down to the material aspects of life and what really matters. And we're all sort of having this at the same time, this incredible feeling of dislocation, of fear, of the intensity of love that we have for the people we love, that, you know, you can't really think about that too much in regular conditions because it would just tear you apart and you could never leave them for a minute. So we're all in this in very intense experience, and I kind of think of it as when I was a kid, we were in Ireland a lot in Dublin, and in Dublin Bay, when the tide goes out, there's a certain strand, and the tide will, you know, when it's low tide, all of a sudden, you see everything that was underneath the water for the last 12 hours. You see mm. the, the pebbles and the sea glass and the, the big dangerous rocks that would have hurt you if you'd gone out. And then it gets covered up again, and you can't see any of it in that brown water. And I think that's what it is now. We're seeing the big rocks, and we're trying desperately to avoid them in our personal life, keep the people we love safe. And, and we know that things, you know, everything here is beyond our control. One thing that we can't lose sight of is how different, I mean, we're all in some kind of common predicament, but there's so many different kinds of experiences mm -hmm. to be having now. And it's easy for me to lose sight of that because I'm in touch with many people who are having a pretty similar experience to the one I'm having and not so in touch with people who are in some ways having the opposite experience. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's not entirely true. I'm in touch with a fair number of doctors who are working, you know, who are performing surgeries and who are, who are on the front lines of this. But they're the people out in the world who are part of critical infrastructure who are still working and exposing themselves to this and, mm. you know, exposing others if they're unaware that they're sick. And then there are the people like ourselves who are sheltering in place. And those are obviously very different experiences. And then there are the people who are locked down as we are, but 
who have their lives totally disrupted. You know, they can't work because their work mm-hmm. was synonymous with not being locked down. It'll say they're running a restaurant or working in a store, both of which are closed. And then there are people who either don't have families. Now they're mm-hmm. experiencing social isolation of a sort that they may have never experienced or you know, go for years and years without touching. And then they're the people like ourselves who, I mean, you and I haven't spoken about this, but I can assume you're probably experiencing, at least to some degree, a silver lining effect here because you're locked down with your family. And mm-hmm. there's been something really beautiful about discovering some of the things on the beach that were truly precious that you were mm-hmm. not necessarily seeing on a hour-by-hour basis. Well, I think that we're really seeing this division between are you a laptop jockey or not? You know, Hmm. if your work is able to be done entirely in this immaterial space of, you know, data that's transported back and forth between computers, then you're probably not taking a financial hit. Right. And it's interesting, the New York Times, it's that's will endlessly fascinate me until the day I die, where they they cover very well and very broadly the, the situation in, in all times, but now in particular, of what it's like to be out of work or to be low income at this time or to be sort of fragile in terms of your financial status and then have it all ripped away. They cover it very well, but all of their social coverage is, you know, their cooking recommendations are endless. And they're watch this on Netflix and what a great time to reorganize the pantry. And you realize (laughs) that if they're a product, they know their consumer very well. And the consumer is probably a laptop jockey. But but even within that social class where we are lucky to live, I think it's even it's even deeper than I mean, including the nature of love, but I think it's bumped us quite suddenly into the material world and the realization of how far we have gotten away from it. Mm. And I found the thing that amazes me, Sam, more than anything else, you know, the toilet paper shortages, there'll be jokes and whatever about that. And I'm sure books will be written. I mean, all of this, it'll take a decade or more to understand this. The thing that amazes me is that America is out of yeast. And yeast doesn't mean cookies and brownies. Yeast means bread. And Mm. Americans, in a huge number, that's one of the most elemental human activities there is. There is this calling to make bread. There's no bread shortages. We can get the same sliced bread that we always got. But people are being drawn, I think, and, you know, I don't want to sound, I don't know, too out of the reel to say this, but I noticed that our, you know, I've written about this a lot, that our homes have become this weird place. We don't have a deep, con- as much as we think we have a deep connection to our homes, and as much as HGTV, the, the redecorating channel, as many fans as it has, even for those kind of wealthy people remodeling homes, they're not deeply, they're not centers of production, they're centers of consumption. You know, br- lug in your, your chips and your sodas and, and watch the TV, and then off you go to the soccer game, to the job, to the vacation. But all of a sudden now, our homes aren't places to display ourselves or our wealth, or it's sort of, oh, thank God I have a stove and an oven, and thank God I've got this freezer. And people are, we've, we try to live a life, it's just sort of like mind, body, spirit, we try to live a life 
that we can just, the way I grew up, you live totally in your head. Mm. But then you get to a point you realize, no, you've got to live in your body too. And I think that we have gotten in that kind of feeling of just our homes are these pit stops and they're these display areas. And and then anybody who's in that laptop jockey level of the economy, which is a very small percentage, but with a huge influence on society, their homes are often much too big for them. They Mm -hmm. can't hear their children in them. They... They can't even find a really warm, close place to be together. And I think that's just went way down the line. It's nothing to really think about or be concerned about now. But I think when the water comes back in and when we're well again and this is over, I think we'll be thinking about that. You know, is there a way to live our lives where the things that were exposed to us that are of high degree of worth? Is there a way that we're willing to sacrifice other things to keep that that revelation? And yeah. you know, we don't know. We're in a mystery right now. Yeah, I think it will reorganize many things. I mean, for all the people who are successfully working from home now, they'll be faced with a choice about whether or not to return to the former pattern of being in an office building for their job. And I got to think many of the companies that successfully pivoted to a distributed workforce may stay distributed just for mm-hmm. for quality of life reasons. And what do you think it's going to do to education? Oh, this is, this is, to me, having been a teacher and writing a lot about education, this has been the most interesting thing to me. Well, everything's interesting. It's a time where everything's interesting, which is why we're all exhausted. But you know, America in this incredible thing, you know, hat is off to the teachers of America that in two weeks, they scrambled to get a distance learning program together for basically every child. It's not a good program. It's not high quality. How could it be two weeks to Mm. totally switch, you know, methods of teaching? That's really, you know, obviously it's not very practical. But the thing that parents, I talk to a lot of them because I'm so interested the thing that parents complain about more than the quality and more than how harassing it is, all these different systems and passwords and, you know, really little kids need a lot of help with that. The thing they complain about is how short it is, that before they know it, that they imagine that their children would have seven hours, they'd have sort of seven hours of coverage the way they do when they drop a child at school. Yeah. But the actual instructional time in an American school for the core subjects that are the make and break of a child, boy, that's 90 minutes. That's 90 yeah, minutes. That's been pretty startling to discover. Mm-hmm. I struggled on how to take the temperature of this thing. So what I've defaulted to is just asking my oldest daughter her perception of how much she's learning at home now. And her perception is that she's learning more And Mm. it's in a fraction of the time, which makes me feel like, okay, school, at at least at this age, is essentially daycare plus, you know, a play date with friends. It's not really optimized for learning. If she can learn as much in two hours as she does in a full day of school, what's going on over there? Right. And I think in in the wealthier communities or in the private schools, it doesn't add up to a problem because a wealthy parent, they get a test score in, you know, a standardized test. And if it's low, a reading score, that's perceived as an emergency. And Mm. tutors, sometimes very expensive tutors are brought in 
And, you know, unless there's a problem, you know, reading and well, math in particular, you can remediate quickly and reading to an extent. So, and wealthier parents nowadays, they, you hear people who run private schools talking about this all the time. Wealthier parents care tremendously about the experience of the school day. They want their kids to be engaged every minute in a, in a sort of delightful, you know, way. And, and so they're willing to have that happen. But when you look at, I mean, California's education, it's, it is in crisis. It is, I mean, Sam, just do this. When you get off the, with me or if you have some time, go online and take the basic proficiency reading test that 60% of kids flunk, can't pass, mm. that, that are in school at 12th grade level, and you'll be shocked. And these kids, year after year after year, you know, you start you know, this is what the Khan Academy is really stressed. When you start falling behind in math, a year goes by, two years go by, you're lost. You're just lost and you can't catch up and you don't have the private tutor. So what we're really doing, as you say, is we're covering the day for working parents. We have a tremendous disparity because when it's the wealthy parents are going to remediate the non-wealthy parents, you know, they, they're probably in a different address by the time that test score comes in, you know, and the test score is the farthest thing from an emergency to a low-income person. So, and if anybody thoughtful was looking at it and said, gee, the number one thing that holds these kids back is math and reading, then we would teach a lot of math and reading. But in California, we have a 180-day school year, and that doesn't mean you're going to get 180 lessons in reading because you have assemblies and special schedules and all sorts of things that block into it. We're not required a number of hours in these essential subjects. So I think we're all getting a look at things we don't want to think about. We don't mm. want to change. We don't want to face facts about you know, our lower income level of education. We don't want to face facts about, gee, if my kid's really just having an experience at school, is that the best kind of experience? And you know who's having the last laugh now are the homeschoolers. Yeah, because yeah. as all the laptop jockeys are running around looking for a password and you know uh-huh. being so upset that they've like, at 90 minutes later, everything's done. Boy, the homeschoolers are on top of that. Uh, you know? Yeah. No, they I, know how to do this. I spent about 30 seconds thinking about the irony here because the homeschooling movement, at least my perception of it in the US is that it's... Uh, I don't know what the actual percentage is, but it seems like fundamentalist Christians are overrepresented in that movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've been hearing from them over the years for obvious reasons, but just to recognize that these people have to be the absolute experts in oh, what everyone's yeah. facing right now. But the other interesting thing, and I mean, this is back to our decadent life before we all are in imminent threat of dying. You know who's getting in on homeschooling? The very wealthy, because they realize that school is an interference to the thing that gets you in the Ivy League. You get in the Ivy League if you're from a wealthy family because you have such a developed talent that is, it is recognized usually on a national or even international level, mm. and that school is a harassing block of time. And so they hire people to get the kids through higher level curriculum for sure, but they want to be free from school so that they can develop the thing that gets you into the Ivy League. So it's just a really, I guess, you know, it is a, once again, with the haves and have nots, you know, this squeezing out of a middle class entirely, and this just entirely different experience. 
So how much of a reset do you think we're experiencing here? How different do you think the world will look in a year or 18 months or after the epidemiological and economic implications of all of this run their course? Again, I don't know what the timeline actually is, but it's hard to see how whatever the new normal is will seem anything like normal shorter than 12 months from now. Well, you know, I have no idea that, you know, just in America, the notion that once again, up against Donald Trump, we have the weakest Democratic candidate in my lifetime. Oh, God. Well, okay, so you know? let's, let's put a pin in the great Joe Biden for a moment, because it, okay. there's a lot to talk about there. But actually, let's race on to that. But I, I just wanted to point one thing out here, that there are at least two, if not paradoxes, ironies that we're going to be slamming up against now. The first is one that I pointed out on Twitter yesterday, as did several other people, which is that if social distancing actually works as intended, which is to say if you know we flatten the curve, which it seems like we're doing in many places, such that the healthcare system doesn't break, the level of contagion and morbidity and mortality is more flu-like than smallpox-like. Mm. The people who have been resisting social distancing, the people who've been crying hoax, you know, media hoax, and mm. they will feel totally vindicated. You know, I'm in touch with some of these right. people. Right, right. And they're absolute imbeciles. They're smart people, many of them, but they've managed to craft for themselves a truly unfalsifiable worldview. Like only bodies piled to the sky would yeah. convince them that they were wrong about this, and maybe not even then. And then there's just this very strange element to this confirmation bias, which is the cities, the blue counties, were the first and hardest hit by this, right? So in Trumpistan, the virus is only now arriving, right? It's just that this was perfectly tailored for misinformation and conspiracy theory and confirmation bias and mm -hmm. just a complete failure of public health split along political lines, something like 97% of Americans are actually under lockdown orders now. So you've got to think the social distancing is happening even in you know, the reddest of red counties to some degree. But up until very recently, there were you know, scenes of people you know, in packed churches and you know, how this is going to interact with our politics in the coming months. I don't know, but it's been a pretty depressing spectacle to watch on social media. Well, I'm always amazed by, well, first place, the thing to really know about America is we're a really strange place. We're a really weird place. We put on a story that we all believe that has to do with us sort of all heading in the right direction together. Hmm. But I remember once saying to my father, who was, he was a freshman in college when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And he, you know, went off to the Pacific and did his thing and then finished college. And, you know, I never thought about it at all. And then Tom Brokaw came up with the notion of the greatest generation. And I was like, oh, that's my gosh, you know, my own father, you know, lived childhood in the Depression and then, you know, going off to war. And I said, Dad, do you know you're the greatest generation? And he looked up and said, if you had known one of the enlisted men on my ship, you would never use that foul <laughs> phrase again. <laughs> and funny. he just said the level of ignorance, of racism. I'm not at all speaking to the 
troops of today for whom I have a great respect. And obviously we're talking about men who were raised in the 30s and mostly Southerners on his ships. But we're a strange country. And I really realized it when there was a video of a, a woman, I don't know where, but she was somewhere in Trumpistan. And she was driving somewhere. And I think a cop and a, and a cameraman at the same time, camera person, were witnessing this moment where the policeman was saying, you know, you have to go home. This isn't safe. And she said, I'm covered in Jesus's blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I tweeted that oh, as that, wow. the atheists have finally found their Super Bowl commercial. Yeah. But it's but on the other hand, can you imagine to live in that life? She's much more at peace with death than we are. Mm. Do I really have that belief? Yeah. Which to us is, I mean, doesn't even sound like a good thing. Like you're covered in Jesus's blood. Like is that good yeah, or bad? I, I wish he had said blood of the lamb or something even more cultic and creepy. But. For yeah. some reason, I thought Jesus's blood was more. I don't know. <laughs> but to be covered in it, yeah. I'm sure this goes back. I always say the people who are really understand their religions are the fundamentalists. Yeah. Like we all like, you know, say the worst things about them. But I'm like, you know, you read the Quran and you're like, well, it's a pretty bloodthirsty book. You know, <laughs> it's like, but we all come along and, you know, I'm, you know, Catholic. And I just sort of we all pick and choose. We use our birth control, whatever. But then there are these people who really believe this stuff. And, you know, there are snake handlers. And, and why do we, I mean, not, not bringing you into this, obviously, but who do we who go to like St. John the Divine and then like have a nice brunch afterwards with Joan mm. Didion or whatever? Why do we think that we are better than they are? You know, they seem to really understand it. I'll take the brunch with Joan Didion. Yes. Can I meet you for brunch after church? <laughs> Yes, you may, <laughs> during which I'll be praying yeah. for your soul. Your reference to birth control reminded me of one of your recent delightful tweets. This is right at the beginning of our quarantine, where we're wiping off packages with Clorox. And I think you wrote, I haven't been this nervous about getting something wrong since I got my first diaphragm in yeah. 1983 or whatever it was. Well, it was, the same. it was really, I mean, it was a joke, but it was true. I remember being a young person. And you think you're doing it right. And with most things, if you're mostly doing it right, then you're mostly <laughs> getting the benefit. Right. But I remember this thing, like, if I get this wrong, it's going to be this incredible disaster. Like, there's no a little bit or not. It's all 100%. Yeah. But mentioning that, you know, you ask what's going to change. I think we're going to see a very positive change in sexuality because mm. I have, you know, being my generation, which was you know, after the sexual revolution, before AIDS had really spilled into the heterosexual population or was even understood, sex was this font of tremendous pleasure and tremendous closeness to the young man whom I dated or whom I was in a relationship with, kind of serial monogamy as a dater. And it was this just intensely exquisite thing that would keep you in relationships longer and that would give you an illusion of more, you know, closeness of, the, you know, true minds on something. And now I hear so many young people, especially young women, whom you would think, well, boy, they have the keys to the kingdom. There's nothing to hold them back. And they're miserable. And mm. I think a little bit more discernment, a little bit higher stakes a little bit more sense that, okay, 
let's get to know each other. Let's find out a lot about each other. Let's find out our testing on this, not just the callous STD testing, but I think this could really change this idea of ultimate randomness for, especially for heterosexual youngish women, the idea that that is a pleasurable thing for the majority is a, it's an error in, in thinking. It's not accurate about women. So I think that this may begin to change that porn-driven culture, which has been so bad for most young women. Mm. Well, we're going to talk about women in a second because we're getting into politics. I want to drop your uh, Twitter handle here because I, I don't know where this is going to be paywalled, but everyone should follow you on Twitter. <laughs> so what's your Twitter handle? It's uh, at Caitlin Pacific. So uh, yeah, so everyone should follow Caitlin. Caitlin has figured out Twitter and uh, it's delightful. Thank you. Okay. So the election, my God, what have we done here? Like We have a nation of 330 million people. We couldn't find one who oh either doesn't have dementia or doesn't seem to have <laughs> dementia. It is, it is bewildering because you go through life, and now this is going to sound more conventionally patriotic, and I very much love America. I very, I've lived overseas. I grew up partly overseas. I truly do love America. And you go through and you meet all of these people and you're like, boy, this person would be a phenomenal leader in a senior position. You know, she's got a really good moral sense. She's deeply educated on, on these issues that you, all sorts of things, and they're nowhere near politics. And then we have these events. Joe Biden could not concede. I mean, there's probably a worse candidate out there. Marianne Williamson maybe is a worse candidate. But for younger listeners, Joe Biden, I first became, I was in my 20s, and he was running very early on um, to run against George Bush one in the reelection. I think that's who it was against. And so he gets caught in this huge plagiarism scandal that his mm. very heartfelt speeches were plagiarized. And he hadn't really risen to the fore yet, but, but it was a big story because it was so blatant. And so I was like, oh, he's kind of a, that's not a good thing to do. And then a few years later, he chairs the Anita Hill hearings where, and obviously life's very different, the world's very different. He really allowed terrible things to happen in that hearing and, and aspects of sexual experience to be repeated or alleged sexual experience over and over again that was very demeaning to her. And then he kind of popped up again, I think, at running against Obama and said some just, you know, he, he mutters on even when he was younger and sort of things come out that maybe he doesn't mean, but he said some really distasteful things about Barack Obama. So he's just, he's been running for president for 30 years, and we have unanimously been saying, not this guy. And mm. now that he's in the twilight of his senescence, when he is just, you know, he has taken the deepest grief you can take, having lost a child when he was a very young father, and then losing a child when he's a grandfather, you know, a grown child. Mm. Child you know? and, a, and a wife, right? Yes. It, but in the original, his child and his wife. And, and, but now to take a hit, you think if you go through that after a terrible automobile accident, it won't happen to you again in your late life to lose another child, this child to cancer. And to have all of that, I mean, it's, 
it's really time for him to have his golden retirement. You know, it's time for him to take pleasure in the family he has and the grandchildren he has and the wonderful wife he has. I cannot really imagine him keeping it together even through the process of the campaign. You know, he right. just, he's sort of like a light that flickers. There's a, a problem in the wiring <laughs> where sometimes, hey, that light's really strong. You know, he gave that speech after the South Carolina primary. I was like, oh, yeah. okay, we're out of the woods here. And then the, then the wiring goes bad and he clicks back off and he says he's just really embarrassing, rambling things. And at some point, and it's not going to be this election, at some point, we're going to have to have someone come up with some good ideas. You know, Trump is bankrupt. Poor Biden needs, you know, he needs to, you know, he, he, he's not up to this job. He's only up to the job in the sense that he's not Donald Trump. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. This is very depressing. I guess first I should say that, you know, I will vote for Biden because I would vote for anyone other than Trump. I mean, literally, it's very hard to imagine someone who I would not prefer to Trump. And I've made my reasons for that abundantly clear in other podcasts. But but after this experience that anybody, and I, you know, I know people, I love people who support the, I guess the Republican plank so strongly that they will take him as the leader over a Democrat. I, I get that. But this man killed a lot of us and may yet kill a lot of us. And he lied over and over, you know, when Politicians lie about higher order things like the economy. We should care more about it because it does mm -hmm. get to us eventually. But people's children, people were sending their children to school because the president of the United States said eight people have this. Yeah. And he knew differently. So uh, if he wins again, again, that's what I'm saying, Sam. We're kind of a weird country. You know, we try to dress up and look nice and we are the best country in the world. I do believe that strongly. But we're weird, much weirder than we're we've discovering. Been. We're a, at least in part, we're a Tiger King country, which, yes. <laughs> which is, is a very Trump-like phenomenon to all be meditating on on that document together. Did you hear that he? I mean, it was a quip, but he might pardon oh, yeah, I, the Tiger. I did hear King. that. I heard it secondhand. I, w I wasn't watching that press conference, but <sighs> yeah, well, maybe we'll have time to touch Tiger King. But let's stick with the election <laughs> for a moment. So the thing with Biden, you know, I don't have any special connection to or animus for him as a politician. I, mean, I recall what you were saying about the Anita Hill hearing. And, you know, I've seen his various malapropisms over the years. There's this recent discussion of the fact that he's he's always had a stutter and has been fighting that. And maybe that's part of what people seem to be detecting. But and that was in Atlantic. That was in Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Show for my magazine. But uh, it doesn't explain the difference between looking at old footage of him and looking at him now. I mean, he, he has clearly lost a step or two or three. Well, you know what he's great at? His, he was the thing that he was absolutely exceptional about at that isn't something that really appeals to voters, but he was great at whipping the vote. He was the guy when you needed to get something passed, that whole sort of hail fellow well met about him. He knew everybody. He cared about people. He remember he was that kind of right. retail politician. Like He really remembered people's kids' names. There's some stories like that. I, I saw a journalist I think it was a journalist. Somebody reported on, yeah, he has one of these crazy political memories where he met somebody once mm -hmm. and five years later he meets them again and he remembers their name and when they, you know, mm -hmm. what bar they were at when they 
met and you know. oh yes that was the kid who had met him at George, at uh, George Washington yeah. University yeah. and he said hey let's go out to your tavern and I think it was like 25 years <laughs> later insane, yeah. and he's like oh Joe Keenan he said oh right you know that's and so that ability of his got a lot of things passed that were important pieces of democratic leg legislation he's good at that that's not a leader that's a very important person working in the machine. Mm. So I don't think even at his best, he was a president type of person. Yeah, but we don't, we don't need the best of anything. We just need compost mentis. <laughs> well, even that seems to be a bit of a stretch, but, you know, and then I feel, I feel incredibly guilty even to be saying this because I, but I always say what I think. So I, I'm not holding it back, the weakness of him, but he's all we've got. So I guess we need to stop even other than to ourselves and privately dwelling on this weakness. But he has the other weakness or perceived weakness, which shines a light on our perceived hypocrisy on the left. He has his own Me Too scandal or uh. incipient scandal. There's a woman named Tara Reed who has accused him of uh, something. And this is one thing that got hurled at us on Twitter. This um, perceived or anticipated double standard that you and I would have around this because we were very quick to believe uh, Justice Kavanaugh's accuser. And to, mm -hmm. you know, I think you and I actually did cover this in the previous podcast we did. And we, you know, rude his election to the Supreme Court. I'm still fairly comfortable with, or I'm still entirely comfortable with the position we took there. But there's a perceived double standard here where we have an accusation which seems at least as bad, probably worse and more recent against Biden, which for reasons that I mean, you're closer to the trade here, you might know journalistically why no one's giving this the time of day, but it's certainly perceived to be just purely based on political bias and calculation that no one wants to hear about his Me Too scandal because it's get rid of Trump at all costs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can just own that. I mean, honestly, there's, there's almost no Me Too scandal that would be so appalling that I wouldn't prefer him and, you know, his VP, whoever that's going to be, to Trump. But that's how dangerous I perceive Trump to be. I mean, that's why I don't have much bandwidth for this. So yeah, this guy would have to be John Wayne Gacy with, you know, the bodies of boys and girls in his basement for me to feel that that was actually relevant to the election. And that's, again, I, I don't need to unpack my full dossier on Trump, but I just think he's taken the banality of evil to a place in our politics past which we really can't afford to go. So what's your take on the Me Too scandal and why we're not talking about it? Well, the larger issue here is why the right doesn't trust some of the premier news gathering institutions of the country. And the New York Times, if you asked them right now, they would say, number one, it's the coronavirus, all hands on deck. And then they would say, well, you know, we looked into it and we didn't find this or that. When, of course, they ran stories against Trump and continued to with far less evidence. And if the New York Times doesn't run a piece on this, you know, under the fold, in page seven, whatever, if they don't run one, two or three stories on it, 
They will reveal themselves yet again to conservatives as an untrustworthy broker. They will reveal themselves as being allied with movements that sound principled. You know, it's a radical idea. Let's believe every single woman. Now, that's a radical idea. And it doesn't account for a lot of things for human nature, but there's a little bit of a reparation in it because for so long women weren't believed. But the second that it's your guy, it's your Democrat candidate, you know, this exact same thing happened with Clinton Mm. when the Monica Lewinsky scandal came out immediately. Gloria Steinem, the mother of second wave feminism, wrote a notorious op-ed that was published in the New York Times, dismissing the charges, saying basically that Bill Clinton, maybe he has a problem, maybe he needs some, you know, sex therapy or, you know, rehabilitation, but this isn't something that that should be worried about. Hmm. And everybody just complained bitterly, and she later retracted it. But, you know, when this happens, things like this, over and over and over again, the right says, I don't trust the New York Times. I don't trust NBC News. I don't trust these places. And then the right says, but but look at all the lies. Look at this video. Everyone's looking at at Fox video at Fox News where everybody was really lying about the pandemic. These are outright lies. And we feel superior Mm. because our omissions were made by people who went to Yale. And we in the press and I count myself part of it. We made a situation. We on the left, we in the press created a situation where our product, to use a crass word, isn't trusted Mm. on the right. And so our wonderful institutions that are full of, you know, people say they hate the New York Times. You can meet the youngest reporter there and they are incredible. They all have like two or three languages. They all are deeply learned. They all have, a lot of them have master's degrees. They've all studied journalistic ethics. They're all interesting, smart people. They're head and shoulders over anyone at Fox. And I'm talking about the most junior among them. And the infrastructure of the New York Times, nobody in the world has bureaus like that. Nobody in the world has languages like that. Nobody in the world has courage like that. You know, women going into very, very dangerous places that had just been abandoned by the Islamic yeah, State. Yeah, Kalmaki. So with, yeah, exactly. A great, great journalist in person. And Andy Mills, who went mm. with her, another yeah. great journalist. But to have all of that and then to just lose the crowd is a terrible thing. And I think to get back the crowd, you know, even saying this, I should probably write a piece for The Atlantic. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, we've got to drop this into the common understanding that there is this charge. It is no less credible than many of the charges against Donald Trump and other conservatives. And we need to take this into account as, are we going to say the Me Too movement is really kind of provisional upon your background? Is it provision? There's many questions. And the high-minded take of Me Too is, For example, in the Kavanaugh thing, people might say, oh, this one little thing, is that going to stop a man from, you know, earning this spot that he's very prepared to take? And the Me Too movement would say, well, that was a girl and she counts too. And what was, you know, four minutes of an hysterically funny thing for this guy and his idiot friend was a lifetime of trauma for the girl and the woman. And we are going to stand up for that. Boy, if they, I would love to see them stand up for that against a Democrat. But anyway, we have got to put it out in the open. 
Are we canceling part of the Me Too movement? And how can we possibly say we were right about Kavanaugh and not take this claim Mm. just as seriously? I guess the problem, though, is that this is asymmetric warfare. This is analogous to the situation we had when Judge Roy Moore was running for office and, you know, trailing absolutely credible charges of, I don't know if pedophilia is quite the word, but, you know, he was a 30-year-old having sex with, what, 14-year-olds, 15-year-old girls, and, Mm -hmm. you know, just, you know, by all accounts, a rapacious ghoul, and uh, (laughs) he still looks the part, and losing absolutely no traction with his voters and Mm -hmm. getting the support of the president. And at precisely that moment, the revelations or pseudo-revelations about Al Franken come out, and he's immediately defenestrated by the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And so the situation we have here is the scruples of, I hesitate to call it the left or even liberals, but the scruples of real journalists and real fact-based ethical people are reliably used against them by people Mm -hmm. who simply don't care about this stuff, but they know the libtards do, right? So it's like, Mm -hmm. yes, the New York Times is genuinely harmed as a brand for its audience when it makes Mm -hmm. a mistake or when it shows real bias. Fox News isn't. There's barely Mm -hmm. a pretense of being news on some level. It's Mm -hmm. world wrestling. Actually, (laughs) the WWE is is a decent analogy here because the people who love it know that it's fake. Right, This fakeness right, doesn't right. actually count against it. It's part of the entertainment. Mm-hmm. And it's just, we have Trump who, there's no question, is trailing accusations, you know, some of which seem credible and should be disqualifying in any politician. And we have a tape of him, you know, bragging about his history of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And you know, anyone who thinks that's just the way normal guys talk in locker rooms is just a, a sociopath. And yet, we know that if we look into this Me Too story against Biden, even if there was nothing else to disqualify Biden, even if it was Biden in his prime speaking in complete sentences, it could very well torpedo his candidacy. And Trump just remains, you know the Teflon groper. And so Mm -hmm. it's that asymmetry that people, I think, can't get their heads around. Well, right. And it's, well, you know, it's a pandemic. I'll just say something that'll get me. I mean, how much more canceled can you get than when you're already in a pandemic? But You're um, already hiding in your house. So (laughs) Exactly. What more do they make? And they have to hide in theirs. There has always been an element to feminism and to the Me Too movement that was a little bit of a hustle. And I respect a hustle in, in sort of a sense, but they get very mad when you say it. There's sort of a sense that there's a magical woman card that you can play and that it is a self-righteous card and it can be used to advance you in a career. It can be used to get somebody out of way for you, from you in a career. It can be used to say we're extremely high-minded And we're extremely, you know, abortion is the last issue where all feminists, where all women were involved. It was the last real galvanizing feminist issue. But then came along Me Too. We're all going to believe other women. That's our strength. And then it turned out, of course, to not be true. It's not true. It's a political, you know, it's, and it's why the reason Gloria Steinem stood 
with Bill Clinton is because Bill Clinton was great for abortion and she was going to run cover for him no matter what. And the reason that we're not going to go after Biden is that we understand the situation we are in. So these women who stand up for the Me Too movement in the face of it, they have to say we have a highest priority, which is progressive politics. And once we've met that standard, then we will examine charges, unsubstantiated charges of sexual assault. Mm. Because otherwise, the right, as you're saying, watching the WWE on Fox, they just say, look at those people. They think they're so smart. They think we're so dumb. And they look down on us. And yet we may be dumb, but we can tell that all of a sudden, all the people who said the Kavanaugh charge was disqualifying, they won't say even a word about this charge against Biden. What about doing what I just did, though, I'm just to open the door only to close it? Is it hypocrisy? I, I don't perceive it to be hypocrisy in myself or a double standard in myself to take this position. Was it given what I think about Trump, Biden would have to have killed and eaten this woman for me to care. Right. Of course, you're right completely. And I agree completely. But if you looked at the rhetoric of the movement, it was believe every woman. Mm. And then I would be forever in a panel and I would start to say, but what about this? And I would always be told the same thing. Well, believe every woman doesn't mean you have to believe every woman. And I go, huh? Like, don't words have meanings? <laughs> Aren't they attached to like right. definitions, yep. the common definitions the that right. we share? Yeah, yeah exactly. And and it was that there's going to be certain women we believe and there's going to be certain women we don't believe. So it is, you know, the whole idea of things start as a revolution and they become a movement and they end up as a racket. There's a little bit of a racket there, mm. a little bit. Although I stand with as somebody who's, you know, experienced some of these things in my life. And I mean, I don't know if I mentioned this when I was on your show before, but when I found out that my my niece had been groped in a New York subway. Mm. It hit me in a way that my getting groped had never hit mm. me. You know, the idea that this girl that I have known, you know, fell to my arms when she was nine days old, that some man would do that felt like I was losing my mind about mm. it. Even though, you know, those anonymous things, nothing can be done. And she was not much the worse for wear for it. You know, she took it in stride the way women have always taken in stride that their bodies in public spaces are not entirely their own. And so the huge, huge, huge anger and resistance and fury galvanized at this moment into this movement that said women come before politics. But it right. turns out it's not really true. So that's, that's a loss there. Mm. Okay, well, so whatever we do with that, detail. Take the VP pick. Who should he pick? Because clearly, on some level, your anyone who can hold their nose and vote for Biden on some level is going to be thinking that he may not even serve out his term. So you're really voting for mm -hmm. the VP. Do you have a sense of who would be a successful pick for him? I remember they said when Bill Clinton was in the midst of the impeachment scandal, they said that Al Gore was one orgasm away from the presidency. Mm -hmm. And so this is that kind of one heartbeat away from the presidency. You know, I, I just I, I don't I don't think that I don't think that 
whomever he has as a vice president nominee, vice presidential nominee. I don't I can't imagine that really swinging someone from a Trump vote, you know, and I can't imagine him being paired with credibly paired with a very progressive person because he's not a progressive. So and I and I do think that I mean, a really interesting exercise for anybody who's on the left or at least who supports getting rid of Trump. Sometimes I've done this and everyone says that can't be true, but they don't do it. Just sort of clear your mind and for 20 minutes, scroll his Twitter and just imagine that he was your guy. It would look like America was on an ascendancy, not seen in anyone's lifetime. Everything's going great. There's good news on top of better news. And it's just a a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time in America. You would start to believe it. And those of us who are maybe looking at other sources go, this isn't true, and that's not true, and that's not true. But I think if you're hooked into that way of thinking, it's deep. And I, I hate to say that I think the way he's handled the pandemic, which I say he has blood on his hands many times over, I think may end up getting read as wonderful Donald Trump saved us. It could have been worse. Yeah. He's in the the enviable position politically. I mean, first of all, everyone wants him to succeed, right? You, you naturally want to rally around the guy who has to deliver the help. However, ineptly, he's mm-hmm. been doing that insofar as anything turns in the right direction, he can take credit for it and people want things to turn in the right direction. So he gets mulligan after mulligan here mm-hmm. and he'll claim many others that he didn't get and he'll be believed by his base. And then they're the people who will think all along this was a kind of a non-issue and he just had to more or less pretend it was a bigger issue than it was for whatever you know Machiavellian reason. They'll have some take on why even the president now is no longer pretending this is a hoax, which mm-hmm. um, squares with their worldview. Hey, what do you think about his not ever wearing a mask? Do you think he's not vulnerable? I mean, isn't it odd that, of course, Boris Johnson contracted it and fortunately is out of mm. ICU, but isn't it odd that he has not con- contracted it? What do you think of that? Well, I, I don't know how, I don't know what sort of precautions are being taken mm-hmm. ar- around him to keep him insulated. But I mean, one thing he's got is some bizarre form of health. I mean, health that is not yeah. at all earned. Bigger. He mm-hmm. eats crap. He doesn't exercise. He's mm-hmm. you know seventy five pounds overweight, and he he doesn't sleep all that much, and yet he's incredibly robust. The yeah. way he campaigns, and it's just amazing. And that's one of these painful ironies where you have someone like Biden, who's not that much older than him, and know. you know for whom every hiccup in his speech reads as a neurological problem. It reads as mm-hmm. senescence. Whereas Trump, you know, it's word salad practically all the time, and yet it doesn't read like a neurological problem. It reads like just more Trump. You know, that's just Trump's style. Right. It's one non sequitur after another, sentences that trail off into nothing, and repetition of a sort that, you know, you would only expect in a head injury case. And yet it sort of falls into, he's a kind of, you know, man child. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he has the life energy of a child, 
you know, a 275-pound yeah. child who's been given the power to run the world. And that's right. how he shows up. I'm not, looking forward, I'm not looking forward to the debate experience between him and Biden because oh. it will really showcase oh. what should be Trump's weaknesses perversely play as strengths, or I think will play as strengths against Biden. Okay, so Caitlin, I, I realize now we are against your hard stop. So we're going to have to pick up Tiger King and Woody Allen's <laughs> book and other things that I know we <laughs> wanted to talk about next time. So thank you for joining me. It's been great to get you back on the podcast. Wonderful. By then, we will have seen the new episode eight of Tiger King that's dropping on Sunday. So we'll have so much to discuss. Oh, man. Okay. Well, take <laughs> okay. care. Until next time. Thanks for saving my life, Yes, I'm, I'm very happy about that. Mm -hmm.